Exodus chapter 33. And as you're finding that in your pew Bible or in the Bible that you brought, we are moving today from celebrating the reformation of the church to, as I mentioned earlier, remembering the saints of the body of Christ. All Saints Day, All Saints Sunday, is a time when we remember and give thanks for the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who have gone before us. Today, we remind ourselves that saints are not special or holy people in and of themselves. Saints are ordinary, everyday people who allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through their lives. So today is not just a time of remembrance, it's not just a time to celebrate our heritage, to again acknowledge those Christians of the past who faithfully transmitted the faith to succeeding generations to us, Today is also an occasion for self-examination, for us as individuals and as a community, as the saints of the present. What exactly are we passing on to the next generation, the saints of the future? Will our legacy be rooted in what we are against, or will our legacy be in, in to whom we belong in life, death, life and death and body and soul? Have we been faithful witnesses to what we have received the person of Christ and the message of the gospel. As these questions are linger in the back of our minds, against this backdrop, we return to the story of, of Exodus. Over the last few weeks, through our own reflection in the text, we have taken a long, difficult look at ourselves. Left on our own, we have discovered that we are a fickle, complaining, stiff-necked, and rebellious people. We are content to make gods that are convenient, that fit our expectations, that conform to our terms. Confronted by this God of the Exodus who calls us, who frees us, who makes covenant with us, only on his terms, we bargain, we negotiate, and we keep our distance. But not Moses. Moses, as we've discovered, intercedes again and again on our behalf. Moses models not bargaining and negotiation, but wrestling with God. Moses pursues and presses into the Lord's heart. Moses is willing to ask for the impossible. He dares to reach for the heavens as we get back to Exodus 33 with verse 18. Let's read it together. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, this is, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or to be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. 
Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Show me your glory. On the one hand, it's a little odd because it's not as if Moses hasn't seen God's glory before. After all, the Lord first encountered Moses through the burning bush. Moses had witnessed the wonders of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. He had seen even the parting of the Red Sea. Moses, like the rest, had seen the pillar of cloud and fire that led the Israelites along their journey that came to the tent of meeting. So isn't this request, at first glance, a little confusing, given that we also even read earlier, before this request, we read something that no one else has this this opportunity for. We read earlier that Moses had the unique privilege of speaking to God face to face, as if speaking with a friend. What is Moses seeking when he says, show me your glory? Moses wasn't requesting to see fireworks. Glory for Moses was the presence of God no longer enveloped by a burning bush, no longer enveloped by the cloud or the fire. In many ways, in order to understand what Moses is asking for, we need to think in terms of degrees of intimacy. We need to think differently about face. Moses was requesting a deeper, entirely comprehensive view of Yahweh's face. He wanted to see the depths of God's heart. He wanted to see the depths of the Lord's very self. Moses desired to behold all of God, to perceive whom Yahweh really is. Why? Well, again, if you've been following this intercession that Moses has been on with the Lord in the, in the aftermath of the golden calf, Moses has continued, has continued to press in and in upon God because God, as you know, has at times needed a little bit of pressing. And Moses, perhaps in saying, show me your glory, even though God said, I'll go with you, Moses, and Moses said, no, no, you need to go with us, and God said, okay, I'll go with you, Moses is still wanting 100% certainty about where this is going to lead. I mean, after all, things have kind of gone back and forth. It's been on again, off again. So Moses wants 100% certainty where this is going. Show me your glory. And the Lord, as you, you heard, as we read, heard this request of Moses, but his answer was a protective no. Moses had asked for too much. Moses was overreaching Even with the best of intentions, and I don't know if we've ever considered this in listening to Moses, but even with the best of intentions, Moses' request has shades of the Israelites' request to Aaron. 
Make us a God who will go before us. In other words, give us a God we can fully understand, we can fully embrace. Lord, show me your glory. Moses wants to be sure that God is going to be with Israel all the way. So Moses says, show me your glory. Show me your plan. Show me everything. And for many of us, that's all we want to. To fully see God without limitations. That's all that many of us say we just need to believe. To completely understand this God and then we'd be set. I mean, we have just... We have too many questions. We have too many doubts, too many reservations. And so if the Lord would just show us everything, if the Lord would just make his intentions plain, his will, then we'd stop holding back. We'd be all in. Then we'd follow. But as God says to Moses, as God says to us, the fullness of God would be too much. Too much. It would lead to our death. Yahweh makes it clear no one No one may see me and live. In what sense does God mean this, that no one may see me and live? Now, I know many of us go go to the default position of that we would be struck down. And that's a likely possibility. But there's more here than just simply this idea of we would be struck down. I believe what God is getting at is that for God to be fully present, for us to have everything of this God, would be coercive. It would overwhelm us. To have everything of a perfect and holy God, to see all of it would be coercive. It would overwhelm us. If we saw, if we comprehended everything of God, I think we can all agree we could not help but believe. In fact, let's push that further. It really wouldn't be belief, would it? If we had everything of God, it wouldn't be belief because there would be no choice. There would be no freedom. And without choice, without belief, We lose the distinctiveness of our humanity, how God created us, what makes us distinctively human. In Hebrews 11, which is a passage often preached on on All Saints Sunday, it goes like this. We walk by faith, not by sight. And it's not a blind faith. We are confronted by the mystery of God with enough knowledge, enough revelation to make decisions, but there is much we still do not understand, much that we cannot comprehend, and that leads us to have to make choices, to make decisions. That leads us to believe or not to believe, to live by faith. What is distinctive about our humanity is we don't live like the rest of creation by instinct. Because we're wired to make the decisions that we make. There is a great amount of freedom that we are given, which, in, which necessitates faith. If God revealed everything, that what makes us distinctively human, how he created us, would be lost. Because we would have no choice but to believe. There would be no other possibility. Our choices are a byproduct of faith and belief. We hope, we trust That's distinctively human. That's the basis of our relationship with God. Hope, trust, that's our basis of our relationship with each other. If you're struggling with this, ask yourself, is a relationship a relationship if it's based on 100% empirical knowledge? I am married, and I believe that my wife loves me. I know on one, at one level that my wife loves me, but I can't get 100% empirical knowledge that my wife loves me. There are those moments when I have to simply take it on faith. 
There's an element of, especially when I can be the worst part of myself, that I question, are you sure you want to stay with me? Are you sure you love me? And my wife assures me that she's in love with me, and I can't believe it because I don't like me very much. And it's difficult for me to understand how could she say that she loves me when she's seen this side of me. And there's no knowledge that I can have to understand it. It's a matter of faith, of belief. Notice when Moses asks this, show me your glory, how God redirects the question. Instead of speaking of glory, God talks of his goodness. God wants Moses to know him. He wants Moses to see him, but he wants it in a relational way. In many ways, God's redirecting of the question redirects us to the idea that it's more important to perceive what kind of God this is than it is to see God. As we've talked about before, and I repeat it again, it's the identity of God, not the image of God, that's the key. And maybe that's part of the reason why one of the ten words that God gives to us, gives to his people, is don't make any images of me. It's not about the images. The images will not help you. It's about my identity, knowing my heart, knowing my character. If you will, insight is more significant than sight. Because after all, our eyes can deceive us. You know, as I said, many of us who want to focus on the image of God, we want to see God's glory like Moses. What, what that really translates down to into is we want to see God in the midst of everything else in our life. We want signs that God's there. We want assurances that God's there, very much where Moses is. And that sounds good, but if you really think about it, if we want to see God in the midst of everything else in our lives, what this really does is it makes God peripheral. It makes God secondary. It makes God an afterthought. We want to see God. We want to see God come into focus after we've painted the picture of our lives. We want to see God afterwards. And, and it's interesting when we focus that way, when we want to see God in the midst of everything else in our lives, and that's our, when that's our orientation. Isn't it interesting that when we think we've seen God, he fits so well into the picture that we've already painted? It's like, that's exactly where I wanted you to be. That's exactly how I wanted you to show up. That should be a warning sign to us. God tells Moses, no, 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 no. And this is part of what he's getting at. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You can't fit me into the canvas. You can't fully understand me. The Lord wants us to focus solely on him. The Lord wants... Moses wants us to make his identity our starting point. So if you're with me, it's not where is God in the midst of all the stuff that I know? Where is God in the midst of all the stuff that I've planned? God's redirecting the question and wants us to, again, to instead say, who is this God? And out of that insight into God's character, we learn and then we plan. It's subtle, but it's significant. God wants us to place our hope, our confidence in who he is, not where he is per se. And when we place our confidence in who he is, the rest will fall into place. Focus on the goodness, if you will, and the glory will follow. In Hebrews 11, back to that, that foundational text, often preached, again, on All Saints Sunday, at the very, at the, in the definition of faith, it said that this is what the ancients were commended for. 
They were commended for pressing into the identity of God, for not seeing everything, but seeing God first and letting everything come out of that identity of God. That's how the saints lived. So Moses, not that he has a choice, submits. And as he's placed into the cleft of the rock and the goodness of the Lord passes before him, what does God reveal to Moses? What does Moses learn about who God is? What do we learn? God reveals the meaning of his holy name, the name Yahweh. What's revealed here, these words become a touchstone in the history of Israel as a nation. They are revealed here to Moses, the meaning of the name Yahweh, the richness of God's character, and it becomes a touchstone through the continuation of Israel's history. When anyone asks, who is this God, what is revealed here becomes the standard answer. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in love. That's repeated twice. God is faithful. God is forgiving. And so, here we see in the revelation of God to Moses in the cleft of the rock that we truly can say God is good all the time and all the time. Well, wait a second. Hold on. I skipped a verse, didn't I? The Lord does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Ready to say God is good all the time now? Boy, I wish that verse wasn't in there. It was so good until that part. It was perfect. It's exactly how I would have written it, right? And then there's this verse that makes me have to stop and say, can I really say that God is good all the time, even when he punishes? Children being punished for the sins of the father, the sins of their father. What do I make of this? You know, for many of us, what we, what we, when we hear this, and many, it's funny because you often hear this scripture quoted and we leave out this part. It's like if, it's, if we don't say it, it's not there. But when we hear it, when it is said, many of us take this as, as though God throws down lightning bolts. Boy, Chris, you really screwed up, so get ready, Ethan. Here comes the thunder. That's, I mean, for many of us, that's literally what we think, that God is basically saying, I've got no choice. This is kind of how I work. Tough for you, man. Tough for your kids. Boy, it's going to be a rough ride for them. But rather than thinking about this in, in, a, in that literal kind of way, I mean, I don't really think that plays out for us, this idea that God is just saying, oh, i got no choice. I'm just intentionally bringing down wrath on everybody. Can we see... Can we perceive possibly that what this is getting at is not so much this idea of punishment is not God throwing down wrath with reckless abandon, but instead that this is, the, this is expressing the consequence of our relational freedom. This again is part of why faith and belief are a part of our journey. This is what it means to have a life of faith. Faith, hope, and trust, as we talked about, are based on choices. And choices, as we all know, are meaningless without consequences. We teach this to our children all the time. We teach this to our children, that there are consequences to the choices that you make. We say things like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And they're like, yeah, right. 
We teach children that choices have consequences and there's no avoiding those consequences. Or if we don't teach them that, we enable them. We enable them and we do everything for them. And we convince ourselves that we can avoid these consequences for our children, but time is on God's side. And our children will experience consequences one way or the other. What's happening here, what God is saying and declaring his name, and it's something that we may not like but we need, is that God allows the consequences of our sin to play out. And what God is saying in allowing those consequences to play out, because that's part of the relationship, that's part of the freedom, what God is drawing out is those consequences inevitably seep into the next generation. That's how life works in a broken world. That's how life works in a world mired by sin. Generational sin, which this is often called, is acknowledged when we recognize that we are shaped by our parents and our families. Like it or not, we are shaped by our parents and our families. For good or ill, we are impacted by their choices, by their decisions. Alcoholism, divorce, anger, dishonesty, prejudice, greed, absence. These things are not isolated to the people who suffer with them. They are passed on to the children. Children do indeed suffer the sins of their fathers and their mothers. The consequences of sin do not end with the sinner, but they flow outward like ripples on a pond and affect everyone within range. And those consequences often fall hardest on those who are closest to the sinner. But beloved, they're not imposed they're not imposed by God as if God introduces this to get back at our parents for screwing up. God is drawing out that they are inherited, that they carry over, and that to, to, to stop that, to, to not allow that to play out, would again be to extinguish our humanity, would be to eliminate the choice, the consequences that are a part of our relationship. If you prefer something a little bit more macro, our current global economic crisis will not be imposed on this generation alone, but will inevitably be spread over the next several generations, especially those yet to come. So it was with the consequences of Israel's sin. If we were to go beyond Exodus, so it was for Israel. And beloved, this brings us back in that moment on All Saints Sunday to ask, what is our legacy? What are we passing on to the next generation? Because yes, there are consequences, but those consequences come from our choices. We balk at this. Some of us still right now, you're balking at this. We balk at this in a culture based on individualism. But the Israelites who lived in a culture based on community got this. They understood this. This is how it works. I am connected to you and you are connected to me and I cannot separate my experience from your experience. But what I want to say to you is if this is where our focus stays, if we can't get past this, then we can't say God is good all the time. But if we're able to acknowledge the reality of this, of our brokenness, of our sin, then we are maybe even more so in a better place to receive the goodness of God that passes before us, the gospel. Because really the epicenter of what God reveals to Moses of, how good, of the good news is one word. It's a word that's repeated twice. It's a word in Hebrew that's, that's known as hesed. 
It's a word that's not really captured by any English word. Hesed is a Hebrew word we really can't even capture with an English word. It's translated in different Bibles as mercy, goodness, loving kindness, steadfast love, unfailing love, etc. We don't have a word that embodies what this word is trying to communicate. So the best that we can do, the essence of hesed, is a love, a loyalty, a graciousness that arises out of the lover and cannot be shaken. It's a love and loyalty that arises out of the lover and cannot be shaken. So applied to the Lord's character, when God speaks of him being hesed, it means that even Israel's sin, even our sin, cannot dissuade the Lord from remaining yet committed to us, to Israel. In other words, God's love for us is not rooted in our attractiveness. It's not even rooted in the reciprocity of our affection. God's love for us comes out of the initiative of his own heart. It's rooted in his character. Such love defines who God is. And that's good news. And yet for many of us, that kind of love is seemingly counterintuitive. That kind of love is not logical or pragmatic. Once again, we're in the the boundaries of faith. Seriously, if you were counseling someone who had their heart broken, who was going to continue on in that relationship that broke their heart, who was most likely going to experience even more heartbreak, what would your counsel be? What advice would you give to that person? Keep in mind that staying in that relationship is only going to lead to more betrayal, more denial, more rejection, perhaps even risking the loss of that person's life. What counsel would you give? Get out of Dodge. What are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. Why are you in this relationship? Get out now. And yet, for the rest of this chapter, chapter 34, as God renews his promise, his covenant, his commitment to Israel, he repeats a series of cautions and warnings that he's already given them previously. With his own finger, he inscribes a new set of the covenant of the ten words. He does all of this even as he knows full well Israel is going to forget, ignore, or forsake every boundary in their relationship. He commits himself to her, to us, even though he is well aware from our side of the covenant, as we are renewing it, that it's only going to end up in pieces again. When that promise comes in the flesh... When that promise comes in the person of Jesus Christ, we are going to whip, spit, mock, and nail that covenant to a wooden cross, shouting just like our ancestors did once before, be the kind of God that can go before us. We don't want a crucified God. We want a golden calf. Come down off that cross and show us what you can really do. doesn't make any sense. Hesed is not the kind of love that we can know. It's the kind of love that we take on faith. Hesed is grace-filled love. And when we appreciate this grace-filled love, we realize that grace is more amazing, more amazing than we can possibly comprehend. This whole chapter is God speaking with a megaphone in, in, in in, in the ears of the Israelites and in our ear. It's God saying, nothing in your hands do you bring. There's nothing in you that compelled me. There's everything in you that should have repelled me. 
The love and the grace comes from me. Beloved, we worship a God of forgiveness and justice, but we worship a God of love and grace. The guilty suffer their consequences, but they are not abandoned. God limits the consequences of our sin. Going back to that verse that troubles us, God limits the consequences of our sin to the third and fourth generation. But did you notice his love is without limits? It's to the thousands. Extended to the thousands. There is forgiveness and reconciliation with this God, but it's not reflexive. It's not a response to how we've acted. It's not because of our obedience. It's not based on the benefits we can offer. It's not based on our circumstances. It's despite our circumstances. It's despite our disobedience. It's despite the pain that we inflict on this God and on each other. And that kind of revelation, that kind of grace should lead to us more than just saying God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Amen to that. It should, as it does with Moses, bring us to our knees. When we truly know the heart of this God, we are truly able to know ourselves. Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny how we put all the blame on God, but we don't give God any of the credit? How we say to God, how can you punish? How can you do these things? How can you allow these things to happen? We put all the blame on God, but we don't give God any of the credit. Maybe, my brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe if we gave God his due, Maybe if we realized and acknowledged how blessed we are, not lucky, blessed for a reason, maybe we'd live differently. Maybe if we lived by grace, lived by it instead of talking about it, we'd break the cycle of blame. We'd participate in the end of the consequences of our sin and instead would tap into the love that extends to thousands. We'd see different consequences in our lives. What Moses reveals to us here by how he responds to what God gives him is that there can be no longing for grace if we don't see the consequences of our sin. God's goodness convicts us, but it also opens us up to the hesed, God's gracious love. And if we spurn that grace, the consequences of that spurning are what we pass on to our children. But if we submit to that grace, that will be our legacy. That will be the inheritance for our children. And that's what Moses prays for. He prays for the Israelites. He prays for us. Do you see what Moses prays? It's astounding what Moses prays. Moses prays for the presence of God in spite of the people's stiff-neckedness. He assumes the people are always going to be stiff-necked. Moses has got some insight. He knows this is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And he prays for God's presence because we need that presence. We need God's pardon in order to receive our inheritance. Or if you read carefully, as Moses puts it, to become the inheritance. Lord, make us your inheritance. Make us your possession. So what exactly did Moses see? Moses wanted to see a glimpse of God's glory. He wanted an assurance of the future of God's presence. But as God revealed his name again to Moses, as the Lord unveiled his character, Moses witnessed, as it's written down, as it's described for us, Moses witnessed the wake of God's glory, the residual effect of God's goodness passing by. Beloved, what I believe Moses saw from that cleft in the rock was nothing less than the resulting impact of God's presence in the world. The resulting impact of God's presence in history. The resulting impact of God's presence in the lives of his people. If you will, as we like to say, hindsight, no pun intended, 
Hindsight is 2020 vision. Moses, like all of humanity, has no ability to comprehend the fullness of God. But when God reveals himself, we are able to perceive more profoundly where God has been, where God was present, where he intervened and rescued, where the footsteps became a single pair because he was carrying us. In troubled times, in a world that's uncertain, in a church that's uncertain, in relationships that are uncertain, and many of us live and feel like we're living in troubled times. In troubled times, the hope of God's glory is found not by worrying about the future, but recognizing and claiming the Lord's presence and provision in the past. How do we know that the Lord is with us? How do we know that the Lord will lead us forward? How did Moses know? Because God got him that far already. Because God got us this far already. Because he, we, didn't get here on our own. Do you see where Moses ended up? Show me your glory. Make us your possession. Make us your inheritance. Inheritance. Do you see the, the shift? Moses went from wanting a pit stop. Moses went from filling his tank to saying, overtake me, Lord. Consume me. Possess me. Don't show me your glory. Make me your glory. Make me. Make us your inheritance, your possession. That's a prayer that we all need to pray. Because it's a beautiful paradox. When God reveals himself to us, we are filled up. We are satisfied. But when God reveals himself to us, at the same time, there stirs within us an even more powerful longing for God. We just can't get enough. Hebrews 11 again, the journey of faith for, of all the saints, speaks at the end of this deeper longing for God that the saints had. This hope of glory which carried them forward. Which carries us forward my brothers and sisters in Christ, if we sit here today and we are not moving forward, if we sit here today and we are more fearful of the future, if we sit here today and we say that we cannot find our way, maybe what we need is to hear God's name again. Maybe what we need is to see God's goodness as it passes before us. Maybe what we need is to rediscover our longing for God. Just a few moments, once again, as a practice, as our opportunity, our invitation, we will come to this table. And at this table, God proclaims his name and reveals his person, just as he did to Moses. In this sacrament, we are reminded that the Lord came to us in the flesh. In the bread and the cup, we see, we touch, we taste God himself. We receive God's steadfast love, his hesed, his forgiveness, his grace in Christ. We see what Moses could only dream of, what Paul will later say is the hope of glory, Jesus Christ. In Christ, this God makes his tent, his home, not far away from us, not outside our camp, but in our hearts, in our community of, as believers, and he is with us as he promises even to the end of the age. And when we come to this table, we are able to remember where the Lord has been with us. And yet at the same time, in Christ, through his spirit, we are able to see what Moses longed to see, where God is taking us. 
That in Christ, through his spirit, we become the body. The inheritance of a day when we, when all the world will see God as he is, face to face, in all his glory, in all his love and faithfulness. And we will wear new clothes. And there will be no more tears and death will be no more. We see in part, beloved, but the saints that have gone before us, they see it now fully. They have become the inheritance of God. Their longing has been satisfied. And as a great cloud of witnesses, they are beckoning us to continue walking by faith. To again and again be amazed by God's grace. And in that amazement, to find our perpetual longing, our hope in Christ. That is what has been given to us by those who have come before us. And I pray that that is what we pass on to those who come after. Amen? Amen.